I want to dive right into God's Word because I believe that God has something to speak to you today. Last week we talked about the power of a, a church that's fervently praying. We talked about the story in the book of Acts about how James, uh, the brother of John, had been killed. One of the leaders of the church, one of the original 12 apostles, had been killed at the hands of Herod. He'd been executed, put to death with the sword. Right after him, Herod saw that this pleased the people. He saw that this seemed to have a, a good effect on his PR. So he captured Peter and, and is, is ready to go down the list of apostles and, and put them to death and, and, and hopefully gain approval with the majority at the time. So he captures Peter. He puts him in prison. He's expecting to bring him out when the most people are around at the time of a feast. And he's going to put him to death as well. But there's this powerful phrase in that verse, which says Herod was about to bring Simon Peter out. He was intending to bring him out to put him to death, but the church was praying fervently for Peter. Now that's such a powerful statement and it's, it can't be missed. This was the intention. This was the uh, uh, goal of the leadership at the time was to put to death this apostle, was to, to, to kill him just like they killed the other one. And it says here that be, even though there was a momentum of death, there was a momentum of defeat, what happened was that even though this was the intention of the king, the church was praying fervently. That powerful word, but. But the church was praying fervently. And last week we talked about why it matters that the church would be fervent in their prayer. And, and that, that word fervently in that uh, verse, the Greek word for fervently there, means to be stretched out in an intensity that's more than just a flash in the pan. It's, it's more than just a moment. It's a continuous, it's a, it's a sustained intensity of prayer. You know, I think that's, that's what often we're missing in our church gatherings is any sustained intensity. We have these moments of adrenaline. We have these moments of, of, of bursts of energy. But what God really wants to do in His Spirit-filled church is to, to give us this, this fire, this intensity, this zeal that doesn't burn out just because the latest fad or cause has, has passed by. It's, it's more than just something that arises because of outward circumstances. I know we can all get fired up when there's a news story that catches our attention or where there's something going on politically, geopolitically, uh, culturally. These moments we get caught up in and we, we define ourselves by these moments and Unfortunately, sometimes we define the church by these moments. Now, the church should not take a back seat to, to these powerful and, 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 and uh, uh, momentous things. They, they can't just say, we're, we're not going to have anything to do with it. We're not going to speak into it. We're not going to have any effect on the culture, society around us. That's not a church of power. But at the same time, you can't be led from moment to moment. You can't be led from news story to news story or trend to trend or movement to movement, there has to be, if there's going to be any sustained intensity in the church, sustained affection, effectiveness, sustained power in the church, it has to come from God. It has to be led by Him. And a lot of times when we're led by our news feed, we're led by our social media feed, then, then we get kind of riled up. Our soul gets uh, tickled. Uh, certain things just push our buttons just the right way or the wrong way. And that's what we become about. But really what God is looking for is a group of people that will look to him and say, God, what are you saying right now? What are you doing right now? And how can we be involved? And one of the greatest things you can do is to be a praying church, is to be a church that prays 
alone and a church that prays together. And the Bible says in that verse that we quoted that the church was praying fervently for Peter. That was the thing that turned the momentum around. That was the thing that turned the tide. It wasn't that God just somehow said, well, I, I like Peter more than James. I can, I, can, I can lose James and the church can function. We can't function without Peter. That's not what happened. In fact, the Bible says that the church was the thing, but the church, not but God, even though it was God who delivered Peter, it wasn't a person, it wasn't the power of, of, of the church's own personal piety, it was God's power and it was God's will. But it was the church praying. It was the church praying God's will out. It was the church uh, uh, beseeching God, seeking God that turned the tides. And I want you to know that that's what we believe and that's, that's what we need to engage in in this time, now more than ever. And, and, and I don't say more than ever because it wasn't important before, but because we're growing and you should be growing further and further into the kind of person that God wants you to be. In the same way, we should be growing further and further into the kind of church that God needs us to be in this time. We are His body. That's what the Bible says. The church is not His pet. The church is not His toy or even just His tool. The Bible says the church is His body. I want you to know we're the only body that he has on the earth. His church globally is the only body he has on this earth. He ascended and he sent us his Holy Spirit. And then he said, the church is my body. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. We are the fullness of everything that he is. And so anything God wants to do on the planet, he wants to do through his church. That doesn't mean that he's going to do it, you know, in every way, in a natural way that we're just inspired by God or even instructed by God. And then we use our own natural means. No, it's going to be supernatural. It's going to be God that does it. But as the book of Philippians says, it's God that is at work in you, both to do and to, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it is God working through people that changes the world around us. And one of the greatest ways that we see that change is through prayer. We need to be a church that is devoted to prayer. In fact, that's a phrase that pops up a lot in the New Testament. The first time you might remember it is in the book of Acts, when it says that the apostles were devoting themselves to prayer early on when they were waiting for the giving of the Holy Spirit. They were waiting for that day of Pentecost, even though they didn't know the Holy Spirit was going to come on the day of Pentecost, they were told to wait. And so they were devoting themselves to prayer. Then in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit has come and filled the church and the church is empowered and equipped, then the Bible tells us that they were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, to the breaking of bread and to fellowship, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, devoting themselves to prayer. Romans tells us, be devoted to prayer. What does it mean to be devoted? You know, that word in the original language, devoted, it's, it's used to mean that you are constantly at somebody's side or you will not leave something. You know, you think about a, a devoted spouse who, who uh, has, their spouse has been uh, bedridden, has, has, is, is in critical condition, and they're devoted in the sense that they say, I'm not leaving your side. I'm going to stay with you through this whole battle. Can you imagine a, 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 an amazing assistant that says to their boss, I'm not leaving your side. I'm with you. You know, this is the kind of language that's used to be devoted to prayer. Devoted means I am not leaving it. I am constantly attending to it. I am going to stay here and keep doing this. This is not something we do just because we need something. It is a rhythm. It is a discipline of our life. It is a part of our everyday life. And it's in this 
place of prayer that the church is its most powerful and active. You know, I, I think about in our culture today, how especially in social media, uh, the term thoughts and prayers has been much ridiculed. You know, it gets a lot of heat. People make fun of it. Um, because typically, let's be honest, when people say our thoughts and prayers are with you, it has very little impact on the person that hears it because you don't actually believe there's any real prayer going on. It's something you say to make yourself feel better. It's something you say to kind of brush them off. Now, I want to apologize. If you're, that, if you're the person that says, I genuinely, when I say that, I mean that and I pray, then put yourself out of this conversation because this is not for you. This is not about you. This is about those that just say, I'm praying for you or our prayers are with you as a way to just kind of brush off the issue or, or to, to let someone know you care, but, but it doesn't go beyond that. And people are queuing into that. They're catching on to that uh, for the most part and realizing that most people who say that there's no power in their prayer. On the other side, there are people that even if you told them I was praying, they don't believe there's any power in prayer. They believe that prayer is a meaningless exercise, that if you're going to do anything, it has to be with your own hands, feet, and mouth. You can't just be praying. Prayer doesn't do anything. Well, we don't believe that. In fact, we know that prayer is mighty. It's powerful. And what we need are a group of people that actually believe that prayer has an effect. I want to tell you something. If you don't believe that your prayer has a real effect on this planet, it'll be the most boring thing you do. And if you're praying every day without believing that it's even reaching the ears of God or having any impact on the world around you, no wonder you're tired of it. But when you know that prayer is mighty, when you know that it changes things, when you know that it's really not the prayer so much that we're depending on, it's the God you're praying to, that He's mighty and He's strong to deliver. He's mighty to save and He works through prayer. He acts on prayer, that He's telling us, you, you need to ask of me. How many times in the, in the Bible do we see God speak to His people and say, ask of me? I think there's a whole branch of Christianity that believes that God will do what God wants to do no matter what you do, that it doesn't matter what we do. He's just gonna do whatever. But that's not the God I see in the Bible. I see a God that is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. And in every, uh, he moves beyond time and space. I know that. But I also see a God who says, ask of me and I'll do it. There's a wonderful picture in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Most of us are familiar with chapter 37, Ezekiel in the valley of the dry bones. But in 36, there's this powerful uh, picture that God begins to paint. God is, is talking to a people in exile who've been pulled out of their home country because of their own iniquity. They've had to be taken out of their homeland, the promised land that God gave them. And they've been taken as captives to another land. But then God begins to speak to them as, they, as they've wept over their land, as they know that it lay in ruins. Even God's temple is in ruins. Their homeland is gone. It's destroyed. God begins to paint a picture of what he wants to do. He says, I'm going to take all those places, those ruins that even the birds don't want to land on. And I'll rebuild them. And I'll make it like the Garden of Eden. He says, I will fill it with people. I will bring the, the exiles back home. I will, I will plant your crops and your fields and you'll have fruit and you'll have protection and safety. And, and this place, like he said, like, will be like the Garden of Eden. What was a ruined place will be like the Garden of Eden. 
and he begins to talk about how he'll protect them from their enemies and how he'll rebuild. And he says, I'm not doing this because you've done such a great job. He says, I'm doing this for my own name, my own holiness. I'm doing this because this is who I am. And at the end of the chapter, after he's painted this beautiful picture with so many promises of how he's going to rebuild and he's going to replant and he's going to repopulate the ruined places, he says, these things I will let the sons of Israel ask of me and then I will do them. Watch that pattern. God says, here's what I want to do. Let me describe it to you. I want you to catch my vision. Your vision isn't big enough. Your vision isn't, isn't, isn't massive enough. Hear me. Here's what I want to do for you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Now, listen to it and then ask me for it. And then I'll do it. And a lot of us say, well, why don't you just cut up the middleman? Why don't you just do it? But that's not what God wants. In fact, that's not how God works. He works through people. In fact, the story of the Bible is of a mighty God, a powerful God who uses people, who saves us, who delivers us, and without Him, we're nothing. We can do nothing, but through Him, all things are possible. In fact, Jesus doesn't leave the disciples saying, well, you know, I'm going to my Father too bad you can't do anything I did. That would have been really helpful. But you guys just talk about what I did. Talk about what I did. And if you talk enough about it, maybe that'll, that'll get people to believe in me. No, in fact, he says, the things I do, you're going to do also. And greater works than these will you do because I'm going to my Father and I'm sending my Holy Spirit. Greater works than I've done. The things I've done, you'll do. And greater. See, that's the promise. And all throughout the Bible, you see a God that is not bypassing people, but he's working through people. One of the most powerful ways he does it is through prayer. I want to read you something in the book of James, chapter 5. James 5 is such a powerful exhortation to believers here at the end of this chapter. Uh, uh, and, and sometimes it just seems so simple. When he says it, he says, is this what you're dealing with? Here's what you do. And it seems almost so simple that you almost don't believe it because it's just too straightforward. It's too practical. But I want you to tell you, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through a man to us. You know, this is not just the opinion of James. This is the Word of God. This is the breath of the Spirit. And he used a man, just like I said, he uses people. He used a man to write it down. But this is God's Word to you. I think one of the reasons he used this man is because this man had to learn what it was like to walk in that unit. He had to fight for it. I mean, there were times where he was wrong and he had to come and humble himself and say, I was wrong and, and let's, let's walk in unity. Let's get this together. Let's find God's perfect solution. Here's what he says in James chapter five. Is anyone among you suffering? This is verse 13. Then he must pray. You know, this is such a, 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 this is such a powerful yet simple thing to hear. If you're suffering, you gotta pray. A lot of us are wondering, what we wanna know is why am I suffering? You know, there are answers for that and sometimes there are answers that you don't get right away. Here's, if you're suffering, pray. Now, that tells me that God is interested. Yeah, it tells me that God cares that you're suffering, that he is not careless. He's not callous or rigid and he doesn't say it doesn't matter. He cares and he wants to do something. He says, if anyone is suffering, then you must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. 
Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, this is such an important thing because the thread that's tying all these things together is that whatever's going on, we turn to God, right? If you're suffering, pray. If you're doing really well, sing praises. Whatever we're doing, we turn upwards and we turn our attention to God. We turn to God. We call out to God. If you're doing great, then tell God how great he is. Praise him for it. If you are really struggling, then pray. If you are sick, and you, I mean, this is, this is, when he describes this person, I don't think this is a person that was able to even get themselves to church because they had to call for someone to come, for, come to them. And it says that they will be raised up. Uh, some translations say out of your sickbed, that, they, that they're stuck somewhere. But the, the, the elders come, and why are the, why are the elders coming? Why is it important that the elders come? Well, they're coming representing the rest of the body. See, there's power in unity, and James spends a lot of time talking about that in this book, about the effective uh, uh, power of a unified church that's praying together, that's not in strife and division, that's given themselves to the wisdom of God, which is peaceable and reasonable and gentle and righteous, rather than the wisdom of the world, which is earthly, natural, demonic. It's full of strife and jealousy and every evil work. When we see this, we see the power of praying not just by yourself, but praying together. I love this, that he says that um, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, isn't it crazy that a lot of times the barrier to us being delivered and set free from some of the things we've really struggled with, the sins that have beset us, is that we refuse to let other people in. Have you ever considered that the, the, the solution to your problem may not just be finding the perfect YouTube video to tell you what to do, that the solution to your problem may not be finding the perfect self-help book or just trying a little harder, that what you need to do is let somebody else in, is to let some people in and get rid of the shame that makes you say, if they knew they wouldn't love me, and just say, listen, we all need to, to, to bring each other in. I'm not confessing my sin to you so that I'm forgiven. God's forgiven me. I, I confess my sins to God and he forgives. But I confess my sins to you so that you can pray for me and that we'll be healed. That there is power in a praying church, praying together. Then he goes on and he says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly. Uh, the, one translation says he prayed fervently that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. That is such a powerful thought. He says, Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. Now, Paul uses that same sort of language when he speaks to the, uh, uh, the Gentiles who were thinking that they were gods, and he says to them, uh, men, we're not gods at all. We are men just with a nature like yours. In other words, we are not superhumans. We're not superheroes. We are the same, we got the same makeup as you. Now, why would it be important to tell them that James, or sorry, Elijah, was a man with a nature like yours? Now listen, here's the one thing Elijah didn't have. 
Elijah didn't have a renewed spirit. He wasn't born again thanks to the blood of Jesus. He didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him. He had the Holy Spirit on him, but not living in him like you have. He had less than you as far as covenant right. And yet at the same time, here's a man that was used mightily by God as he prayed. You know, a lot of us remember the moment when Elijah walks into the palace like a gunslinger and says, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain because of this wickedness. I mean, we look at that and we go, hey, that man, he just was able to just say that and it happened. But the Bible tells us that he had to pray. I mean, he announced it, but he had to pray. And I don't believe he just prayed just to kind of make it happen. I believe he prayed to find out, is this what you want, God? I mean, I believe God spoke to him through that prayer. I believe through that prayer, something began to happen. And he wasn't just acting on his own will. In fact, God had said to the Israelites, if you go back to when he first gave them the land that they were living in, he said, if you turn to other gods and idols, here's what's going to happen. I'll shut up the heavens. There won't be any more rain. So Elijah wasn't, doing, wasn't praying out his will. He wasn't praying up, this is what I think should happen. He was praying out something that God had already said. And in fact, I believe that this was what God told him to pray. And when he did, it stopped raining. You see, Elijah's day, the people around, it was just, I mean, they, they were so full of, uh, of, of wishy-washy stuff. I mean, they had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, the king Ahab had married this prophetess of Baal, of another religion. She was a zealot. She was a fanatic. And she was highly against Yahweh. She was against the God of Israel. She was against the true God. And she had all these false prophets come and, and work for her. And she filled the land with that idolatry. And the, and the people of the time had just this little bit, just these, all these like dipping sauce for their spiritual McNuggets. You know, like this, this little barbecue sauce of Baal. I got a little bit of hot, a sweet and spicy of Jehovah. I've got this and that. And, and, and just and it's much like our culture today, just thinking you can just have a little bit of everything. But in fact, God calls that idolatry. He calls that adultery in another place. Like it's like you just saying, uh, you know, I'm married to this woman, but I, I just want to, I want to date other women all the time as well. You can't do that. In fact, what they were doing was fellowshipping with evil. And, and evil had filled their nation. And so Elijah is praying out what God tells him to pray. And he prays it and it stops raining. And then you know that three and a half years later, he's on top of a mountain with all these people gathered around. And he's saying, we're going to find out once and for all. We've been wavering too, all, too long. After all this, you're still on the fence. Well, we're going to find out which God is real. So if your God is real, you get him to send fire on your sacrifice. If my God is real... He'll send fire on my sacrifice. And when they did this, only one, of course, only one God answered by fire. And that was the God, uh, the, the only true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel and the God of all of creation. He answered, lit that sacrifice on fire. Whereas the prophets of Baal danced around, screamed, cut themselves, did all these things, trying to get a God that didn't exist to answer. And when this happened, the people of Israel said, the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. We believe. Even Ahab is floored by it. Even the king is floored by it. And Elijah has those prophets of Baal taken care of. And he says to Ahab, you just get ready. It's going to rain. And the Bible tells us that Elijah put his, uh, his head between his knees and began to pray that it would rain. He tells his assistant, go and, go and look. And the assistant goes and looks and he says, I, 
you know, sir, I can't find anything. There's, there's no clouds up there. He says, go, and he prays some more. And then he says, go and look again. And he says, there's nothing there. And then he says, go and look again. And, and he says, there's a cloud the size of a man's fist. And then Elijah says, here we go. And he tells the king, go, you better get on your chariot and get home because it's going to rain. And he girds up his, his cloak and he outruns the chariot down the mountain because the spirit of God is so powerfully on him. But here lies the problem. Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. Can you imagine how hard it might have been to sit there and go, God, it hasn't rained for three and a half years. I know you answered that prayer. I'm not quite sure you're going to answer it again. Stick his head between his knees. Why? Because I can't look at the sky and pray. I have to keep my focus. I have to keep my attention on God. If I'm looking at the sky, I'm going to be led by my sight. I got to just pray this out. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like if I were to look at the situation around me, I'd be so discouraged? And three times he has to ask, you know, what's going on around me? And, and the first couple times, even the third time, it's pretty discouraging. And have you ever been in that place? We're talking about sustained prayer. You know, Jesus told a parable about an unrighteous judge who was pestered into answering somebody, this widow uh, uh, who had nothing to offer, couldn't bribe him. And she just kept bugging him. So he finally answered And Jesus said, the Bible says he told that parable to teach them how to pray without losing heart, that they should pray at all times without losing heart. See, if we're talking about what really gets in the way of our intensity in prayer and devoting ourselves to prayer and fervent prayer, it's that we lose heart, we get discouraged. We get discouraged because we don't see it happening. Maybe, maybe you're like Elijah and you're having to stick your head between your knees and say, I don't see it, but I know God's doing something. Discouragement because it doesn't happen the way you thought. Because Elijah ran down that mountain thinking things were going to be different. The king saw the power of God. The king knew that God is, is the only true God. But when the king goes back to his wife, he tells Jezebel everything that's happened. And Jezebel says, I am going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill Elijah. He's a wanted man. There's a bounty on his head. And Ahab, the king, who I'm sure Elijah thought, once I've turned his heart, all of Israel will turn with him. Ahab the king backed down and let his wife, who was an evil woman led by a false god, let her call the shot, and he just backed off. And I'm sure that Elijah at that moment, who was so full of victory, who was so full of encouragement, just had a missile of discouragement hit him. Because he thought, you know, I thought this whole thing was going to change. And all of a sudden now, there's not change. In fact, it's worse than it ever was. He says to God, God, please just kill me now. Elijah went from his greatest victory in prayer to being suicidal. He was a man with a nature like ours. Even Elijah got to the point of deep discouragement. I want to tell you, we'd all like to believe after these great victories, it'll be victory upon victory. But I want to tell you, sometimes after your greatest victory will be your greatest opportunity to quit. It'll be that moment of discouragement where you'll think, I thought everything was going to be different, but the world is still busted outside and stuff still goes away. And there's, a, there's an enemy that now is riled up and pushing back. Jesus said, he told them this parable so that they would pray at all times and not lose heart. Keep going. God speaks to Elijah. An angel strengthens him. 
gives them some food, tells them to take a nap. How many of you know sometimes that's just what you need to do? Have some food, have a snack, have a nap. Let's see how you feel after that. But then he takes Elijah to the top of this mountain and Elijah hears the sound of this mighty wind, an earthquake, this fire, but God's not in any of it. But God, all of a sudden he hears the sound of a still small voice and he knows that it's God. He recognizes the voice as God's and he comes out and he says, Lord, I've been zealous for your name, but I'm the only one left. They want to kill me. I'm the only one left. I've done everything you told me to do. What's wrong? And God tells him, God gives him a plan. Here's two kings you need to anoint. Here's a guy that's going to help you and assist you and take over when you're done. You're not alone. There are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee, have not kissed the feet of Baal. There are 7,000 that are still for me. And in that place of prayer, friends, when you feel alone and you feel discouraged, I want you to hear the voice of God. You're not alone. Number one, you are hearing the voice of God. And if you're with God, you're never alone. Number two, he reminds us that we don't pray alone. In fact, there are times uh, I mean, we should have a powerful, solitary prayer life. Jesus told us to go into our prayer closet and pray. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray to be seen, who just want to be seen and, 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 and do their fancy prayer in front of the cameras just so the cameras know they're praying. No, he says, go into your prayer closet and pray, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. It doesn't have to be an actual closet. Just go somewhere where you're not praying for other people. You're, you're, you're not praying for the sake of people seeing you and saying, oh, you're so holy, but you're, you're, you're just talking to God. But as much as you need to have a solitary prayer life like Jesus had, we need to have this body prayer life, this corporate prayer life. And when I say corporate, you need to understand, we're not talking about business. We're not talking about corporations. The word corporate means body. It comes from the word for body the Latin word for body. And so what we're talking about is the body of Christ praying together. And the New Testament is full of this instruction, of this example, of the church praying together. And James talks about it here. Pray together. Pray for one another. Pray as one. Pray in unity. Devote yourselves to prayer, both by yourself and together. And watch the momentum turn. And beware of being led by your eyes when you're looking around and going, I don't see anything changing. And beware of being led by your ears or you're going by the latest thing someone said. Or beware of being led by your expectations when you go, it didn't turn out like I thought. Like Elijah, who thought this was going to be the thing and after that, Israel was going to be different. Because we're not in a sprint, we're in a marathon. This is not going to be over with one shot. This is going to be sustained intensity. But we have the victory in Jesus. You know, I want to read you something that one of my, I believe, distant relatives said. This is a man named Ian Bounds who wrote prolifically about prayer in the 19th century. And he talks about the, uh, the machinery of church and how that, that man's efforts, we build these machines, we build these programs and systems to keep things going. But the, if, if there's no prayer, there's no life. He says this, what the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods. She needs men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. When he says that, of course, he's using the vernacular of the day. He's not speaking just of males. He's speaking of people, humans. God does not anoint machinery, but people. 
Men and women of God, God wants to use you. The Holy Spirit wants to use you. Ask of me. Get together and pray, God says, and watch what I do. See, a praying church is a church that believes in God. A praying church is a church that believes that God will and can do something about this. That's what James said. No matter what you're going through, talk to God about it. Look to God. Let's turn our attention to God. And let's not just let it have these moments where we feel like we need to pray now because all of a sudden the news told us it was an emergency. Friends, we should not be led by an unregenerated, unborn-again news system. We gotta be led by God. We don't wait for the news to wake us up. We wait for God to wake us up. And friends, God has already done everything he needs to do to wake us up. It's time to respond to it and be a church full of prayer. Prayer of a righteous person has a powerful effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And just in that same way, there's discouragement. Remember John, the brother of James, was in that prayer meeting praying for Peter. He had to deal with his own uh, questions, I'm sure, why his brother died and why God was going to save Peter. These are questions he had to answer, but these are things he had to put aside so that we can pray right now. And I want to tell you that I believe that God is raising up a praying church right now, fervent in prayer, fervently praying, fervently loving. We're going to talk about that later, but we need a fervent church. And I, I'm praying right now that we be devoted to prayer. In fact, um, I'm recording this on a Friday and uh, I know some of you may still thought this was live, but actually I'm right now I'm at the uh, church building in Lloydminster preaching, uh, but I'm recording this right now on Friday, uh, and we're going to have tonight, we're going to have a time of worship and prayer as a church uh, where we gather together and seek the face of God and minister to the Lord. And I believe that these times are going to become more and more common in the church of today because it is a time to pray. It is a time to seek God. It is a time to minister to the Lord. It is a time to fast and pray. It is a time to put aside the, 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 the desires that you have naturally. Listen, I know I'm hungry sometimes and, and I'm thirsty and I'm tired sometimes. But I want to tell you that when we're devoted to prayer, those things become secondary. We're not led around by our appetites. We're not led around by our physical needs, even though those matter to God. What matters most is what God's doing in the Spirit. And you'll find what Jesus said is true. My food, when they're trying to get him food, he goes, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. That doesn't mean Jesus never ate, but it meant this is more important than a snack right now, friends. This is more important than a sleep. This is more important than a break. We are in the midst of a move of God. And it's something that God wants you to be part of. I want you to consider how you can Begin this journey. I, I, I know that when someone starts working out, those first 15 minutes, the first 45, it's tough. You know, when you say in the new year, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back in shape, you know what it feels like. You are fighting your own body. You're fighting your own flesh that doesn't want, this wants to stay in bed, that wants to eat pizza all the time, that doesn't want to work hard, doesn't want to sweat, doesn't want to feel sore in the morning. I get it. Even more so are the things of the Spirit because we are surrounded by the things of the flesh. We are surrounded by a world that's soaked in the flesh. And so everything's about it. Everything's about your appetite. Everything's about your, what you want, what you feel, what you desire. And when we come up to God's level and we begin to seek Him and focus on Him, then all of a sudden He brings you back to a place where He says those things are secondary, tertiary. They are not the important things in life. In fact, all those things will pass away. 
God wants to feed you your daily bread. He wants to give you his beloved sleep and rest. But more than anything, he wants you to be close to him, to hear his voice, to know what he's doing. He wants you to be people whom the power of God can flow through. He wants you to be people that ask of him and see him respond on your behalf. And I want to ask you, will you join us in this? Join us. If you're part of this church, join us. Come to prayer meetings. Get, get with people who know how to pray. Learn from them. Uh, uh, watch and, and listen. You may not be just like them. You may have different giftings and, and you got your own uh, uh, diverse flair that God has given you, but, but learn some things from them. Learn how to press in past that point of, of fatigue and past the point of discouragement. And then also on your own, can you devote some time daily to prayer? I want you to get it some time to, with the word and some time to prayer and make it part of your daily routine. I know that right now that may sound like a lot, but just start with something. Start with what you, start. seek God. Say, God, what can I start with? Don't, don't start with trying to do five hours a day. Start with something that you can do and that you'll stick to and then let God ratchet it up because you're gonna fall in love with it. I guarantee you'll fall in love with it. Lord, would you do this amongst us? Would you raise us up to be the kind of people that are used mightily on this earth? Father, we thank you that it is not our work, it is not our power, it is not our plans that succeed, but it is the will and the power and the plans of God that overcome. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So Lord, build our faith, and and, and thank you, Father, that as we devote ourselves to prayer and to your word, to the teaching and to fellowship, breaking of bread, Lord, that you are causing us to be the kind of church that can be used to affect the world around us, that when we say, my prayers are with you, it won't be an empty gesture. It won't be just something we're saying just to kind of kiss somebody off. No, it'll be the most powerful thing we could do is to say, I am praying for you. And when I say that, I mean that. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus.